What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Mike. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, more records fall on Wall Street as the NASDAQ and the S&P. They both eye fresh closing highs. So as we kick off this new month, should you stick with what's been working or is it time to double down on other parts of the market? Our investment committee is standing by to help tackle that question and much more. Joining us for the hour, we have Brent Talkington, Steve Weiss and Jim Labenthal. But first, let's get a quick check on the markets right now. Uh, as Sarah and Mike mentioned, we look like we're on track for new highs right now. We're seeing the Dow up fractionally. However, the S&P up almost a half a percent. The Nasdaq doing even better than that. Not shown here, the small caps doing better than all three. And I really think that's where we have to begin. Not the small caps, Steve Weiss. We're not talking about the small caps. It's not a small cap day. But are you going to stick with mega cap tech? Are you just going to keep this train rolling? Or is now the time to maybe take some profits and broaden out the thesis? Well, I, I did shave a little bit of meta. Um, but, you know, I don't look at it that way. I look at what's reliable, right. what's predictable cash flow, assuming they have it, and what am I happy owning? Now, clearly, I think there are issues in the market in terms of the exuberance. Mm-hmm. I take a look at a stock like Dell. Are we going to talk about that later, Dell? We're or? definitely going to talk about Dell okay, later. Okay, so I'll leave that for later. But this is just not normal to have the market going up every day on a relatively narrow move. Now, as Jim and I were talking about earlier, there are other things that are working, and I'll, I'll leave Jim talk about those, right. uh, whether it's aerospace or... Oh, wait, can I push back for you? Are, yeah. are there other things that are really working? Yes, yes there are. Wait, well, hold on one second. I'm going to show everybody a graphic right here. We have a great data team at CNBC. I know you guys have great data teams at your firms. But this year, year-to-date, the S&P gains, 57% coming from the Fantastic Four, 32% coming from NVIDIA alone. So... Yes, some other things may be working, but the majority of things working are that fantastic four. It depends how you parse the data. That's not entirely true, okay, because that also takes a number of stocks that aren't working, but there are a number that are. J.P. Morgan, it's a new high virtually every day, for example. Now, it's not going to have the same type of movement as 4% moves right. a day that you could see in, in a meta. But the point is, is that I know that I'm in an uncharted territory in some of these, whether it's Microsoft or whether it's Meta, but I also know that AI is uncharted territory. But regardless, so that's going to add more revenue, more talent. Right. But regardless, I'm comfortable that even though I may view those stocks as ahead of themselves, and I do, that ultimately they will grow into that. So if I go and I sell more now, take it below a core position, what am I going to do? I'm going to pay taxes on it, and I'll be behind the eight ball for when I go back in. So I like those, but I have broadening out my portfolio, but I want to stay with the ones that work. Google hasn't been working so well, but it's a fixable issue. They will work well. You can't deny that it's a great company. Why, so, so yes. you're worried about taxes for this year? We haven't even paid the taxes for last year. So yeah, I always looking. worry about taxes, man. Forward-looking. 
Um, you mentioned uncharted territory. So, Jim, I want to come over to you. I was actually having a great conversation with a leading tech investor yesterday from a global firm. I can't name the firm, but he basically said... But name the investor, though. Can't do it. Oh. Basically said to me, uh, the Fantastic Four trade, the Max 7 trade, whichever way you look at it, yes, you're paying up. The valuations are stressed, but what you're paying up for is certainty and peace of mind because these stocks are going to be in the winner circle, at least to a certain degree. So I won't disagree with that thesis, but what I will say is the corollary or the counter to that is that outside of tech... Yeah, there may be some more uncertainty, but relative to the earnings per share growth that is likely to come and the share prices, boy, you're getting some good deals. And not only do I say that, but the companies themselves say that and are buying back shares Look, really across the board. I don't care whether it's Wynn Resort and Casinos, General Motors, Cleveland Cliffs. I mean, there has been tremendous cash flow generation over the last two years as people have worried about recession. What these companies have done is take that cash flow, pay down debt. In a lot of cases, they really don't have that much more debt to pay down, so they're buying back shares, and I'll take that. So the point is well made that, of course, there's certainty uh, with the AI trade. But outside of, of the AI trade, there is actually wonderful bargains where as long as you don't see a recession coming, which I don't, there is great value. And to the point that you and Steve were just talking about, I mean, OK, it's fine to look at the year to date and say that, you know, the S&P 500 is running away with it on the back of NVIDIA, Meta and a few other AI trades. But outside of that, there are some excellent absolute performers. You can look in financials, industrials, healthcare, just as examples. You can look at those particular stocks that I mentioned. And I want to just close my my opening, you know, soliloquy, Frank, on, by saying this. I've been saying this for a few weeks. If you look at any given week, one week the Nasdaq outperforms, the next week the small caps outperform. That is the sort of churning that goes on when leadership changes. It doesn't change on a dime. But look at the last five or six days since NVIDIA reported. Okay. Small caps are outperforming. The equal weight S&P 500 is outperforming. And for the economic reasons that I've been prolific in talking about, I think that's what's going to continue. All right. So, Britt, I'm going to come over to you. Jim's over here bargain hunting. I want to ask you, are you bargain hunting? Or are you staying bullish on big tech? A lot of the, the leading market voices on the street, they're staying bullish. For example, City put out a note earlier saying uh, the bubble's not overly large. They put in parentheses, at least not yet. When it comes to price appreciation, duration, valuation, or sentiment, they go on to say we think the market's likely has further room to run. We remain bullish on U.S. equities and bullish on the tech sector. In fact, this note's almost so bullish, it's almost contrary at this point. I mean, price appreciation hasn't even run up so much. Brent, what do you think? I think to put some context on that, because I do think people throw the word bubbly around, um, they just you know throw it around so often. I think if you look at rolling three-year returns on the S&P, which are really constructive, typically when we get into bubble territory, those rolling three-year returns equal like the S&P did 100% over the previous three years. We saw that in 87, we saw that in 1998, and we saw that in 2021. Right now, the three-year average annual return for the S&P is 10%, so 30% cumulative. So we're not even remote into remotely close to those time periods. And so I do think that the market, albeit an event or what have you, can still run. And I think on individual names, a lot of times just sitting still has been really the best the best way to invest. So last year, whereas healthcare didn't do well, my AbbVie didn't do well last year, but AbbVie's at 14%. Um, Diamondback Fang actually did well last year. Diamondback's up 19% this year. So there's so many other areas I think that we are seeing this broadening. And, you know, in December, Frank, we added RSP, which is the equal weight S&P to our portfolio. So year to date, it's only up three. So you haven't seen that that gap condensed. But I do think if we get a broadening out, I think I still want to stay large cap versus small cap. And I think that RSP over time will will pick up the pace. 
and have some better returns. So you're looking for the broadening out, Brent. I mean, over February, we saw consumer staples be the leading sector. I mean, is that what you're talking about? Just some of these other sectors uh, spiking up, but does that really change what's driving the market overall? Even to see that broadening, it, it, consumer staples, again, best performing sector, but it's still tech yeah. that seems to be pushing the market forward. Well, I mean, really, it's NVIDIA, right? I mean, Apple's not doing so great this year. And I, I've had this contention that I think that you're going to continue to see a dispersion of returns within these mega cap stocks that we all talk about, because the market is really favoring companies that have a clear plan on how they're going to monetize AI. And right now, that plan is very clear with Meta, very clear with Microsoft, and very clear with AI, with, with, with NVIDIA. Not so clear with Google. It's clear that Google can't get their act together. And Apple, we're still unclear there. So right now, those two names to me are more in the penalty box. And so ultimately, as an investor, I still love the cues. I think that's a great way to just long term, or if you want to be more defensive, you could sell calls on that. But I think long term, short term, you still want to own those those large caps, but have some other things in the portfolio, like an equal weight or companies that like Jim likes, like that are heavy free cash flow yielding companies. I mean, I think a lot of people agree with the consensus here, actually. One time we have a consensus here, believe it or not. It's all about the large cap. Morgan Stanley's uh, Mike Wilson also saying large caps sees large caps continue to outperform small caps. Uh, high quality growth and operation official efficiency factors outperform. So we've got a bit of a consensus there. Um, I do want to come back around to you guys. When is enough enough? Uh, you mentioned you took some money off the table. Jim, same question for you. I mean, when do yeah, you start to think maybe now's the time to take significant profits. When is enough enough? But, you know, the money I took off the table of Meta was when the market uh, got hit on inflation numbers and everything collapsed. Uh, I bought some Meta because I thought it would bounce. It was a good opportunity. So that part was a trade. That's why I took I haven't touched the core positions. And the core positions in Meta and Microsoft are now each about 15% of my portfolio. Okay. I mean, they're really up there through appreciation. But I don't know why you take it off at this point. But then I look at NVIDIA today. So why is NVIDIA up today? It's up today because of Dell. Why was Dell up to this point before earnings? Right. Because of NVIDIA, right? So you've got this positive ping pong effect that goes back and forth and it's ridiculous. So what is that? That's a feeding frenzies. Feeding frenzy. Feeding frenzies don't typically end well. However, I still believe the momentum's there because you've got a new, and I've said this for the last year and a half, two years, you've got a new type of investor in the market that goes to what they know, that goes to what's sexy, goes to what's hot, right? right. It's more of a rational play from you know, GameStop, right? So those that clown car's out of the market. Now it's looking at fundamentals. And the fundamentals, as you noted from your conversation with the unknown expert, who's not as expert as Jim and I, by the way, right, Jim? Um, Jim, Jim gave you, you a go where you know. I saw it. Yeah, I, I saw that. You I know what? Speaking of investors going to what's hot, what's sexy, what's working, that's what you're doing right now. I think you might be talking about yourself. Let's get to our chart of the day. We're talking about <laughs> Dell soaring to a new record intraday high following big quarterly earnings fueled by AI server demand. Weiss, you already front run us on this one, but you're looking at it. So tell me, what do you, what exactly are you looking at? I so think, what I'm looking at, so here's here's what's bizarre. Does the Look, they had a good quarter. They, it was they, a really good quarter. Well, Yes and no, okay? What was good about it is that they had 800 million in AI server server revenues and the, uh, the backlog went from 1.6 billion last quarter to 2.9 billion. Good numbers, but guess what? It's a $90 billion revenue company. So you're increasing, and by the way, they just came in line on revenue and they lowered guidance for the first quarter next year, right? So what was so great about it? 
So to me, you don't add market cap, but you don't increase market cap by a third on that report. That's the feeding frenzy. But, but is it just on the about. report? I mean, for example, next yes. week we have HP coming out. They're having a big event about right. AI laptops. Dell's obviously a big uh, PC maker as well. So is it, in your mind, just on this report, or is it the idea that there's multiple parts of their business that could benefit from AI? It's just on this report. Okay. Okay. You also the think it's cheap, 18 times? In your mind, that's now cheap? It, 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 no, it's not. Historically, this company sells for most of their business commodity business, right? So PCs, that's still weak. Enterprise spending, we've heard repeatedly, is slowing. But the typical multiple for this company is 10 to 12 times. Right. So now you're paying, you know, 50 to 80 percent. But is it cheap that. to get into the AI trade? Here's why I think it'll keep working. I'd buy it if it pulled back because it's just going to be about AI. Every other part of the business is going to be ignored. It's just about AI. So this quarter is just, you know, very instructive in terms of what's driving these stocks. So okay. any place you can get. So would you rather pay 18 times for this, which is overvalued, or 70 times for NVIDIA, which is also overvalued? I mean, Britt, I'm going to pose that question over to yeah. you. Would you rather pay 18 times for this or for NVIDIA? And, and what do you think about what might be a theme that's kind of coming up right now when it comes to AI and hardware, as I mentioned? HP having a big event next week where Jensen Wong's supposed to be there, Lisa Su's supposed to drop in as well to talk about their AI PCs. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to how much are you growing earnings, how much are you growing revenues, and what are your operating or profit margins? And so I think right now, Dell surprised everybody. I think Dell is a very under-owned name, by the way. And, you know, the algos and the call buying, I didn't look at the call buying this morning, but I do think to one point that, that Steve talked about and to kind of dig in even more, the, op, the call buying in this market right now is very frenzied and very high. And so you're seeing a lot of these overreactions on names. But I do think Dell is more reaction to being under-owned, and it caught most people by surprise is why you're seeing that reaction. But at the same point, Frank, you can look at a snowflake yesterday, which was down, what, 25% because they had a miss and Frank Flutman's you know, going to move to chairman. And so I just think right. we're having these extreme moves and these kind of companies. And that is the price of admission if you're going to buy into these tech names. It can go either way around earnings calls. Jim, I don't want to leave you out really quick. Your thought on AI and hardware. I also want to point out something else. Uh, ticker is EQIX. We don't talk about this stock a lot, but Equinix trading at a 52-week high right now. That's a big server uh, play, especially when it comes to Data AI. center play. Data center, excuse me. Thank yeah. you. Well, look, I, I think there is fundamental value, and let me define that word, meaning it's not a bubble. This is what Bryn was talking about within AI space. I'm not saying these stocks are all price-like value stocks, but I will say, you know, if we go to NVIDIA before we get to EQIX, you know, it trades at 32 times this year's earnings for a stock that's consistently outperforming on earnings estimates, uh, growth estimates above 50%. So that actually is worth it. I mean, I would not say that that's an expensive stock. I actually don't know EQIX, so I don't really want to get into that. But I think the overarching point that you're making, Frank, is whether there is room to run in the AI trade. And I think with these large cap names, there is. Meta is attractively priced as an example. Google, I know people are leaving it for dead on the mistakes that have happened in the last week, but not just the attractive price there, the fact that they bought DeepMind 10 years ago and they really have the technological chops with which to not only fix the problems that they have, but really grow that business gives me a lot of comfort there. So where I'm going with this is if we're looking at AI, 
AI, and this is what Bryn was saying earlier, this is not a bubble. It's fundamentally, there is value to be there. I will say, however, just going back to where I was uh, at the beginning of this, you know, my overweight is outside of AI because I see more attractive prices there relative to earnings per share growth, and that's why I'm overweight industrials, financials, healthcare, et cetera, all of which, by the way, if we were to look at the returns year to date on financials, industrials, healthcare as a sector, we'd be pretty darn happy after two months to have high single digits in these sectors. Problem is, everybody says, well, NVIDIA is up 35, 40%, whatever it is, so these other areas must stink. That is not the case. These areas are having fabulous years and are likely to continue throughout the rest of this year. You know, I, I, just to add one thing. So, sure. j j I don't want to come off as preachy. I'm actually guilty of the same enthusiasm, <laughs> so to speak, in my portfolio. Yeah. So I sold Ver Vertiv. I sold Vertiv half of it before the quarter, sold a little more, then sold the rest of it on the quarter. And that was a good sale. And then what happened? NVIDIA reported, right? So I bought it back because guess what? You know, they sell the cooling racks. They've got a great business there for data centers. So when they talked about data centers, great. Today, what's happening? Stock's up again because of data centers, as is EQIX. Right. So it's it's incestuous what's going on. But to Brent's point, yes, options are driving a lot of it. But you know why people are buying options? Because they don't want to buy a thousand dollar stock. They they still don't get the math that if you put a thousand dollars into a thousand dollar stock, you get the same returns if you buy ten shares of a hundred dollar stock. So until the people start getting smarter on that. You know, okay. they'll keep driving the options Let's market. Let's button up this conversation. Two points of order. I know you were just exaggerating, but uh, NVIDIA's valuation for BE yeah. about 36 times. Also, upgrade today for NVIDIA from Daiwa. Uh, raised the price target to 900 uh, from 535, believe it or not. They so why would you listen to that analyst? Why would you listen to an analyst <laughs> who has to virtually double his price target? Bryn, would you listen to that analyst? I know. I mean, I, it hurts me to agree with Steve, but I mean, this guy was so late to the party. It's like, why are you at 535? What have you been doing? So I just think that, you know, who knows what happened here, but I think the price target is already at, it's already at 817. So right. that was a little bit late, late to the party. You know, some people say better late than never. I say never late is better, personally. I say drop coverage if you're doing that. <laughs> We're going to move on now to our other big story. Several Fed officials speaking today about the economy and, of course, the path the lower rates. Our Steve Leisman joins us now from the U.S. Monetary Policy Forum right here in New York City. Steve, good afternoon. Good to see you. Hey, Frank, how are you? All right, so Steve, two big conversations. You had all of us watching today. We were looking for any clues on what the Fed's going to do next, especially after that PCE yeah. report. What was your big takeaway? So I think there's two things. One is you had one guy bark in from Richmond a little bit more hawkish uh, than, than the other one, uh, Goolsby from Chicago. But, uh, you know, uh, a Barkin saying that there's no particular hurry to cut rates. He also added that, you know, he said, will we see rate cuts this year? We'll see. And the 10-year uh, sold off on that. But then look what happened when the data came out at 10 o'clock. The data was weak. 10-year fell pretty precipitously in yield. And I think the story there is, while both have their different points of view, neither is particularly dogmatic and really able to move or thinking about moving where they're going to go and what their view is based on what the data say. Both, by the way, acknowledge that January data from inflation may have been a little squirrely, a little bit of an anomaly and not necessarily going to change their point of view on anything. But uh, what they're both saying is that they're not dogmatic about it. 
I think that's where the Fed is right now. Relatively agnostic, not particularly hawkish, not particularly dovish, just letting the data tell them where to go. You had a January number that was lousy, and you're going to come back and say, well, we'll make up our minds more about what's going to happen when we see the February and probably the March data, Frank. You know, Steve, I do want to ask you, so I was watching your interview with Barkin. I mean, number one, he handled the Squawk Box crew excellently. He seemed like he was in a great mood, but it felt like he leaned at least a little bit dovish. I mean, he said we're on the right track. He said we should be cheering. Isn't that the dovishness that the market has really been looking for? You know, I don't see Barkin as any particular uh, ideology when it comes to dovish or hawkish, Frank. Uh, you could have taken some dovish uh, sensibility from what he said. That was relatively uh, apparent. But also some guys, as the 10 years sold off, more, more at the time, the market took a hawkish point of view. What Barkin is focused on is this sort of culture of inflation. He pointed this out when it first started, that all of a sudden it was possible for companies to raise prices. So he takes a lot of what his point of view is from the anecdotal information he's hearing from companies. And he believes that we're sort of past the point where companies feel they can um, raise prices without there being something of a backlash either to their earnings or their sales or from customers. You know, we got some questions for you. I also want to put in here, uh, Rick Santelli just crossed in my email. He says Atlanta's GDP now index, it fell to 2.12% from 2.96%. Just another data point in this, but I want to toss things over to Jim. He has a question. Yeah, and that's, thanks, and good to see you, Steve. And that's a great segue because that's where my head is. You know, the data's coming in a little squirrely here. Obviously, Steve, we know what CPI, PPI did uh, a few weeks ago. You got the ISM today. You got the Atlanta Fed coming down. Um, is there, look, I, here's what I want to ask. It seems like the Fed's going to be late. Is there any chance that they'll kind of get the memo early that maybe a prophylactic cut is, uh, I'm not saying in March, I'm not even saying in May, but like to really put June on the table and acknowledge that the soft landing is not guaranteed. I believe in it, but it is not guaranteed. And you're getting data that proves that point. You know, Jim, I, I have been looking for Fed officials who are more concerned with the outlook, um, the negative outlook, than, than they are with the positive one or higher inflation. And it's very hard to find. There aren't yeah. many dyed-in-the-wool doves out there. There aren't many who are as concerned as you are about this. Um, I, I agree the data is, uh, well, first of all, I, I think there's, an, there's a good uh, way to invest by, Jim, which is that friends don't yet let friends use the Atlanta Fed uh, GDP <laughs> forecast, which is one, well, one, one way to think about it. Certainly quarters, early, it's been pretty on. I mean, it, it, it's, it's been like pretty good, but no, certainly no, not. In the last couple of quarters, it's been pretty good in, in its accuracy. It has been. It has been. But early in the quarter, you don't want to use it. Atlanta Fed now has come down to where our CNBC rapid update is much closer in the two okay. to two and a half percent range. When they start off their quarter, they're very, very optimistic. They have to come down and come in. So that's a big issue, I think. So um, I'm not surprised to see this. I still think the story is the economy running at or above potential is a very, very good result. If we can stay at that 2% or 2% plus range, I'd be relatively happy about that. But I do think, Jim, you're right that if this data continue the way it's going, you might hear more dovish talk from the Fed, but you're going to need those inflation numbers to come down with the economic growth numbers. Steve, we've got one more question from you. This one from Bryn Talkington. Hey, Steve, you know, we all talk about rate cuts and they're going to be one, two, three, or six. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on quantitative tightening. I think that the Fed, one of the next two meetings are going to talk about that. Maybe they could stop QT and just be neutral. I wanted to get your thoughts and insights on that. 
Well, there's a bunch of talk about that at this conference I'm at. I'm at the uh, University of Chicago Booth School's uh, Monetary Policy Conference, and we just had Waller and Logan, uh, probably the two biggest experts on QT, probably along with John Williams, uh, on the Fed on this issue. Um, Logan talked about the possibility of a more gradual unwind of the balance sheet to let them go a little bit further. Waller wants to see the Fed get out of uh, some of the longer-dated treasuries on the balance sheet and go down to the shorter-dated ones. I think the Fed is going to talk about it at the next meeting. They fairly well telegraphed that. I think the story is going to be that they're going to keep, they're, they're going to reduce QT later on this year um, and probably stop it later on this year um, with a question as to sort of plus or minus, I'd say, five, 50 billion on either side here. They're probably going to go down to two, six, three trillion on the on the reserve balance sheet. Fed's not sure they're going to kind of grope their way. And they're really feeling like if they go too far, they have this thing called a standing repo facility, which is kind of like a central banker get out of jail free card. If we go too far, banks can go get reserves. So I think they're going to keep going, but probably end it this year. I don't think they're going to end it sooner than you think. I think they'll end it probably by the fall or November of this year. All right, Steve, great to see you always. Steve Leisman, senior economics reporter, doing some great work. Finger right there on the pulse of the Fed. Uh, right now, Steve, below you, we see a banner. We want to mention this to the audience right now. The NASDAQ hitting a record high. You can see right now it's up about three quarters of 1%. We'll continue to watch the NASDAQ throughout the show. But I, I want to stay with this Fed, this, this, uh, Fed conversation, I should say, for just a moment. Uh, Steve mentioned doves, few and far between out there. I'll tell you who's not dovish about the Fed right now. The Apollo chief economist, Torsten Slock, out with a new note. His note headline, the Fed will not cut rates in 2024. He gives us 10 reasons why the bottom line, he says, uh, the Fed's just going to be fighting inflation all year. Yeah, you know, and that's the question. Okay, so, so I think the Fed, after what we say, saw inflation on the way up. They want to make sure they got this right. And there they got, acted late. Here, maniacally enough, they want to act early. And I agree with that. So... I'd say there's some troubling data that came out. In PCE, consumer spending is slowing down. We saw some slowing numbers today. So I truly don't believe you can write off, you know, the risk of not having a soft landing, something worse. Jamie Dimon said that. Uh, we've had, uh, of course, you know, David Solomon from Goldman have said that. These people are right at the crossroads of all that data as well. So to me, that's the caution, and that's the word. And if the Fed does keep rates for this high into next year, then I think with the certainty, you know, that you could see an economic uh, recession. Jim, any I, chance no cuts in 2024? I mean, zero cuts in 2024? I love Torsten. Okay, I read him he's every great. day. He's great. Uh, Torsten, so, you're welcome. Sober, sober mind. Sober mind. Well, he's he's not afraid to say what he thinks. Yeah. I mean, let's let's say that. And, mm -hmm. and Torsten, you're welcome. You should get a lot of subscription requests after I just said that. But he is must reading every day. I read it today. It caught my attention. I do think the Fed's going to have to cut rates. Here's where he and I are going to disagree. Um, look, I think inflation has been coming down. The real question is whether the January CPI, PPI are a blip, or are we reversing trend and going higher? And, you know, as much as the labor markets have been strong, there are a lot of indications that job vacancies are coming down pretty quickly, and eventually that's going to cut into the labor market. That's why I asked Steve the question that I asked. Is the Fed, like, starting to get wind of the fact that all is not well in Denmark or Tahiti, whatever the expression is? <laughs> so I do think there's a reasonable chance that the economy starts to soften, and the, uh, but more reasonable chance of that then that inflation rears its ugly head again and goes higher without any cuts. But again, love reading Torsten. I think you got to read him.
Yeah, Torsten, great guy. As a matter of fact, he's going to be on Closing Bell overtime right here on CNBC later. Imagine he'll be talking quite a bit about this note where he's forecasting no cuts in 2024. All right, coming up next, we're following a developing story on Boeing. The company reportedly talks to buy Spirit Aerosystems. We're going to break down the details, plus more on the big tumble in shares of a New York Community Bank. Look at that chart. You can see shares are down more than 22% right now. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion. Helping the world keep promises. Electricity. A big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. mentioned the Nasdaq hitting a new all-time high. We're also following a developing story on Boeing. The Wall Street Journal reporting the company's in talks to buy Spirit Aerosystems. Both Boeing and Spirit, they've come under increasing pressure from customers and regulators to improve quality issues, especially after that door plug incident on an Alaska Airlines flight back in January. Jim, you sold Boeing after that incident. What's your take on a potential deal? Keep in mind, this would actually be Boeing buying Spirit yeah, back. It spun the company it. off a few years ago. I got it. I mean, let's start with the bigger picture, all right? The country needs Boeing to be successful. The country does. Um, the airline industry knows it, and by that I mean the global airline industry. The government knows that, okay? If you look at durable goods orders earlier this week, they were well below expectations, and that was because of the issues at Boeing. I mean, this is a major economic powerhouse. And, oh, by the way, China really wants to come in with COMAC uh, its domestically produced airline company and take over market share from Boeing. That is a long way off, but the more that Boeing screws up, the more that chance, the more that door opens. Now, honestly, it doesn't matter whether Boeing buys Spirit or not. Either way, profits are going lower at Boeing, because with all that I just said, and in particular, the government knows that we need Boeing to be successful, there is a way to fix this. It has people examining every step of the production process, and by people, I mean an airline representative, an FAA representative. You you know, Boeing extra quality control representatives. The situation is fixable and it will be fixed, but it will be fixed at the cost of profits, no matter what Boeing pays for Spirit or not. This is going to be profit impaired for quite some time while the nation fixes what must be fixed at Boeing. All right. Looking at shares of Spirit right now, up over 13 percent, Boeing down 1 percent. Important to remember about Spirit, though. I know you got one point, but we got to keep moving. Yeah. Spirit, before the pandemic, it was about a $100 stock. Now you can see Trading at about 32.43, and that's with the rally on this news. We got to keep it moving, though. All right, we're going to move to another big mover. New York Community Bank sinking once again today. Our Leslie Picker back at CNBC headquarters with more on this story. Leslie, what's the latest? Yeah, Frank, look at that. Wiping out another 23% today. This is 
kind of the epitome of growing pains. New York Community Bancorp made two sizable acquisitions in the last year or so. You've got Flagstar in December of 2022. That deal catapulted NYCB into the top 25 in the country by assets. And then almost a year ago, NYCB scooped up many of the assets and assumed the liabilities from Signature after it failed. So in doing those two deals, NYCB surpassed the critical regulatory threshold of $100 billion in assets, subjecting NYCB to more rigorous stress testing and oversight. Now, those plans are typically submitted in April, meaning banks need to set aside the appropriate amount of reserves ahead of time in preparation for stress tests. The Fed just released its scenarios for 2024 testing, noting a severely adverse scenario that features a much higher starting level of interest rates compared to previous years. Not too surprising, given the trajectory of interest rates and that those interest rates decline more precipitously in the test. The way one analyst explained it to me this morning is NYCB opted in 4Q to bolster its reserves and criticize much of its multifamily loans and office loans, essentially address the potential risk in the portfolio now versus a more phased-in approach. By ripping that Band-Aid off, NYCB revealed higher-than-expected losses and, as a result, had to slash its dividend. Now, there are still very significant unknowns here. Why did the chief risk officer and chief audit executive department months ago as NYCB was transforming into a bigger bank. Note, they announced those roles were filled today. But also, why did NYCB discover a weakness in internal controls for loan review? And are there any other issues that may pop up as that review continues? All of this uncertainty definitely playing a role in weighing on that stock price today, Frank. Yeah, a lot of developments there. Leslie, we know you're on top of it. Our Leslie Picker, uh, live back in Inglewood Cliffs. Again, New York Community Bank shares down more than 22%, almost 23% right now. Weiss, I'm going to come over to you. You have a lot of financials, ownership, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America. What do you make of NYCB? What do you make of the regional bank space? It's troubling. So I know Jim takes a different view, but I think the wall. No, I don't. The, the massive wall. Re- oh, good. I'm glad to see you. Well, well, you don't. The massive wall refinance. I'm getting nervous that you guys are agreeing. Me too. I'm yeah. getting particularly nervous. I'm the one he's agreeing with. But the massive wall refinancing later this year and into next year, we're going to see more of these problems. This was the other shoe to drop and clearly not the most well-managed. And given the fact they went through an acquisition fairly recently and the Fed didn't pick up, on the poor controls, I mean, that's troubling as well. So we don't know what else is out there. As I said, J.P. Morgan hit an all-time high. So why mess around with the regional banks and try to buy value, you know, which doesn't exist? All right, you know, speaking of the regional banks, let's just show really quick a chart of the KRE, the regional bank ETF, over the last year. If you look here, it's actually down double digits over the last year uh, following SVB. So a lot of turmoil here, Bryn. What's your take either on NYCB or just the regional bank space itself? I think this is, should be in the too hard camp. So number one, regional banks also are a really big part of small cap value. And so I think small caps, in particular small cap value, because of the regional, regional banks, are in the too hard camp. And so what we do know is that there's a trillion of commercial real estate mortgages that will need to get refinanced, extended, pretend, what have you, in 2024. And I think that Realist commercial real estate is going to be slow to work out. And I think that these regional banks will be in the penalty box, not just for this year, but for the next few years until there's more clarity of who owns what. Also, also, if rates actually stay higher for longer, that adds another tension point on what's on these banks' balance sheets in terms of their long duration treasury exposure. 
All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, again, New York Community Bank shares down more than 20% right now. It's time now for the headlines with Bertha Coombs. Bertha, over to you. Hey, Frank. The nation's largest pharmacy chains, Walgreens and CVS, will start to sell the abortion pill Mifeprestone after being certified by the Food and Drug Administration about two years after the companies had first applied. The rollout will begin in a few states next week. However, they will not be providing the medication through mail order. The Department of Justice is resisting subpoenas from the House Judiciary Committee for testimony in the Hunter Biden criminal investigation. NBC News obtained the letter to Chairman Jim Jordan that said that the subpoenas were neither justified nor constitutional. While the letter did not explicitly say that the DOJ will not comply with the order, it asked the committee to send written questions with time to answer. And snow from one of the most powerful blizzards of the season continues to pound the Sierra Nevada mountains. The blizzard conditions prompted Yosemite National Park to close through at least Sunday. The storm is expected to last through the weekend with higher elevations facing as much as 10 feet of snow. Meantime, mountains here back east haven't gotten all that much, Frank. It's been a weird winter. I'm very thankful. I don't want Marsha to come in like a lion. I just wanted to be like a lamb right now, Bertha. Bertha, thank you very much. You have a great weekend. All right, coming up here on Halftime, energy among this week's top gainers with crude oil hitting its highest levels in four months today. We're going to tell you how the committee is playing the sector. That's coming up next on Halftime. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back at the halftime. Taking the check of the markets right now, as we mentioned earlier, the NASDAQ hitting a new all-time high. You can see it's up almost 1%. The S&P also hitting a new all-time high, up over a half a percent. We'll continue to watch the markets all throughout this hour. Uh, again, S&P and NASDAQ hitting new highs. All right, now we want to turn our attention to the oil market and energy. Crude oil trading above 80 bucks a barrel today, or just at 80 bucks a barrel, hitting the highest level since early November. Brent, I'm going to come over to you. You have broad energy and oil ownership. What do you yep. make of this move to the upside for oil? Well, I think we're going to continue to see, you know, 80 is the new 60. I think we'll bounce around 75 to 85, you know, over the next few years. I think that energy also underperformed last year with the exception of a diamondback. This is a wonderful year to add energy exposure to a portfolio. And so you can either do it, if you're going to do an ETF, I would do RSPG versus an XLE, which is almost 50% Chevron and Exxon. But I think you have a sector that outside of Healthcare, the free cash flow yield 
on the energy sector is close to 9%. So you have companies that are growing free cash flow yield, they're paying down debt, increasing dividends. And I just think you're going to continue to see um, a nice move in energy this year. And there's lots of areas to play it outside of technology, right, that hasn't run away from people. You know, Britain, to your point, energy is lagging also when it comes to earnings. We just got the new LSEC numbers out. Uh, EPS higher uh, by 10% year over year. But if you exclude energy, it's up over 13% year over year. I do want to ask you one question. Um, we're seeing this upside for oil without China really participating. We haven't seen that demand spike that so many people have been forecasting. If China is able to ramp up, do you see oil? Where? Or actually, I should ask you, where do you see oil going? I mean, I... You know, China is the second largest economy in the world. So that always has to be a figure into inflation, into energy markets. And so I think if China can actually come out of their slump, which I'm not sure they can, I think it's going to take years, that will absolutely, that will absolutely put price pressure on the upside if they're consuming more fossil fuels. I mean, they're the largest like consumer of coal still, right? So it's like this company, they're building a lot of nuclear and solar and blah, blah, blah. But in reality, they're using a ton of oil and a ton of coal, and that would absolutely put upside pressure on, on energy prices. Jim, I'm going to give you one last quick word. I'm bullish on energy, but here's what you as an investor, dear viewer, need to consider. There is a huge disparity between the price of crude oil and the price of natural gas. I mean, natural gas is in a bear market that is breathtaking, frankly. It's showing some signs of life. It should show signs of life if global demand continues to pick up and if the shale oil plays do, as they seem to be showing signs of, start to deplete more rapidly than people expect. All right, there we go. Uh, WTI, the U.S. benchmark when it comes to oil, hitting just at 80 bucks a barrel. All right, coming up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word with stocks now at record highs. You're looking at them right there. The Nasdaq hitting a new high. The S&P, same story. Halftime back right after this. And we are back on halftime. You're seeing it right there, the S&P and the NASDAQ hitting new highs. And great to have right now with us senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. He joins us with his midday word. And, Mike, we were just chatting about it. Markets hitting new high. And we've been so worried all year about the narrowness of this market. So after NVIDIA, we had our data team run the numbers. The Magnificent Seven, they were just over 50% of the S&P gains year to date. Now, the Fantastic Four, Fab Four, I like Fab Four sure. better. 57% of the market gains. Should we should we be worried? Um, yeah, Beatles fan, you prefer Fab Four. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't think worried is the right is the right posture here for that reason. Now you talk about these four stocks are 20% plus of the S&P and they're accounting for 52% of the upside over a two-month period. That doesn't sound that out of kilter to me. Now, the reason is because if you tote it up that way is how much of the aggregate market cap gain is attributable to a handful of stocks gains, that looks like it's concentrated. But if you talk about how many stocks, what percentage of stocks are in a decent uptrend, it's much improved. I don't think it's obviously the most comprehensive, all-inclusive rally we've ever seen, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, to me, the equal-weighted S&P has shown some life. Um, the, the small caps have actually threatened to break out to the upside, although I think it's very, very important to note it's because of the crazy growth stocks in the Russell 2000. It's not because of, you know, the banks and Main Street retailers. A lot of people talking about the small caps. Conversation for another day, but I also yeah. want to ask you about earnings. We just got the latest LSEG numbers. Uh, pretty much every company reporting earnings 10% higher year over year. Does that justify what we're seeing in your mind? 
It explains it. I think arguably it justifies it if it continues, not because the market's cheap and not because we expected bad things out of earnings, but because as long as they are on the march higher, and that's what the full year looks like, usually you, the market can hold its valuation. Okay. So I think that you check off that box at this point. All right, 487 on the S&P 500 reporting again, earnings 10% higher year over year. Coming up next, Bitcoin coming off its best month since all the way back in 2020. We'll tell you how the committee is trading that rally halftime back right after this. And we were back on halftime. You know what? Cryptocurrency really having a crazy week. Bitcoin, it's up over 20% less traded. Brent, I'm going to start with you. You own the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. You also own the Grayscale Ethereum Trust. What's your take on this action we're seeing in the cryptocurrency market? We have escape velocity in the ETFs. IBIT, which is BlackRock's, is the, fir- the fastest ETF to get to $10 billion. So, So that is just incredible. And with the halving going on, that's going to be happening. Essentially, miners are going to get paid half as much to mine Bitcoin, which is meant to slow down the production. And so we have a good old-fashioned supply-demand imbalance where there's way too much demand because of the ETFs and not enough supply. So, you know, I've always said I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin was at 100000 and I wouldn't be surprised if it was 25000 So I just think that there's a lot of excitement in this. And as the ETFs make it very simple, I think okay. that we're going to see just continued strong inflows. Weiss? What are these? Hands. Diamond hands, Frank. Diamond hands. Why Even though Bitcoin's down 38 bips today, haven't sold one of those coins. Not one. So, look, momentum's going to continue for every reason that Brent said, Brent said, and I think just continue. So I'm playing the momentum, even though I don't believe in as having any utility whatsoever. I can't, Jim, you let me fall for that? We're going to move on. <laughs> uh, Bitcoin right now trading at almost 62,000, just about 7,000 below its all-time high to having. A lot of people see that as a catalyst. Final trades, they're coming up on halftime. Stay with us. And we're back on halftime for final trades. Bryn, you're up first. Yeah, if you want to diversify out of tech, add some good free cash flow yielding exposure. Pacer Cash Cows owns the hundreds highest free cash flow yielding names in the Russell 1000. Currently 8.5% free cash flow yield versus the Russell 1000 at three. Jim. Yeah, I just want to clear up some potential confusion. Twice earlier in the show, I said I'm bullish on financials. I've said for quite some week, I'm talking weeks, I'm talking about the big financials. Citigroup is one of them. I have also said for quite some weeks, I am not interested at all in the KRE or regional banks. Diamond Hands, you got the last word. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for clearing that up. I'm one of the most anxious viewers who was hoping you would. I'll go with Google. To me, it's extremely cheap. Gotta Everybody leave it there, hates Got to leave it there. That you does it for buy. halftime. The exchange with Dom Chu. It starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its 
its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about to win the Tuesday Night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. 